Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. Each week, as we move through Psalm 119, we're looking at a section of the psalm to see what the psalmist has to say to us about God's law. Much of it deals with our attitude or the inclination of our heart toward God's law. So it's a good kind of self-evaluation exercise for us. How do we measure up to what the psalmist is expressing about his love and delight in God's law? And we're also identifying one larger principle each week about God's law kind of from the rest of Scripture and looking at at least one specific law or um, something from God's law that illustrates that principle. And this morning, we will be looking at eight verses from Psalm 119. We're going to look at verses 49 through 56. We'll take a bit more time than usual on the text itself this morning and its applications for our lives, and then a little less time than usual on the principle and the particular law. We will see the principle and the law, but just a little more concisely than normal. Go ahead and follow along as I read Psalm 119, verses 49 through 56. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Let's start by looking a little closer at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Do you ever need reminders? I don't trust my own memory. Sometimes when I have an important meeting, I might set three or four reminders on my phone. One a day before to make sure that I'm ready for the meeting, about one, you know, two hours before, one about 30 minutes before, and one a couple of minutes before, just to make sure that I remember. Here, the psalmist asks God to remember. Why ask God to remember? Was God in danger of forgetting? No, that's not what this means. To remember in the Bible often means to take action on behalf of someone, specifically to act according to what you have promised. And here the psalmist is asking God to act according to his promise. From the psalmist's perspective, it might seem that God has delayed in acting on his behalf. But we know that's not true. God acts at just the right time, every time. The Bible teaches us to have hope in God's promises, to believe that God will act. Proverbs chapter 13 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. We don't like it when it seems to us that God should act sooner, but he hasn't. But we need to remember who God is and who we are. When God seems to delay, it's not needless or purposeless. As an example, God gave a vision to the prophet Habakkuk, but he told him that the fulfillment wouldn't happen until just the right time. 
He said, still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. And then God says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. When God seems to delay, it's not needless or purposeless. It's also not because God is forgetful. Psalm 111 verse 5 tells us that he remembers his covenant forever. So it's not that God is forgetful. It's also not because God has changed his mind. God tells us in Malachi 3, I the Lord do not change. It's not because God has changed his mind. No, when God seemingly delays in keeping his promise, it's for a good reason. The psalmist is asking God to remember, that's putting it in language that we can understand. It's not really saying that God needs to remember as if he would have forgotten. It's explaining God in human terms for us. Because human terms are what we can get our mind around. Here's how Calvin describes this. He says the psalmist here speaks according to the grossness and weakness of man's understanding. For it is most certain that God never forgets what he has said or needs to be solicited or to be reminded as mortal men who promise much at random but never remember. Now, we must not imagine God to be like man, but rather he bears with us and he stammers after our fashion when he defers the accomplishment of his promises and we know not the cause. Calvin says that it's like God is stammering in that the majestic and glorious God of the universe is stooping down to explain himself to us in language that we can understand. And the point is, when we face difficult circumstances, our minds should go to the promises of God, and when our minds go to the promises, then they should go to God himself. And so the psalmist prays and asks God to act according to what he has promised. Let's take a look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The psalmist is continuing here to speak of his affliction, his difficulty, and how God's word is what equips him to flourish in the middle of the difficult circumstances. In Psalm 91, we hear God say, When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. That's one of God's promises, is that he'll be with us in trouble, in the middle of it. His presence will be with us in the difficult circumstances. A couple of psalms later, Psalm 94, the psalmist says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. This is divine comfort. God consoles the souls of his children. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So not only is God's comfort divine, it's also powerful comfort. It gives Paul joy in the midst of affliction. There's no circumstance that we could face in which God is unable to comfort us, his children. The word of God provides comfort for every sort of trouble. Now, we often struggle because we love earthly things too much. But if we held on loosely to earthly things, 
we wouldn't have as much sorrow when we lost them. Our hearts need to change. We need to have our desires set on the things that God says are valuable. And the only place to learn that is in his word. So be diligent to read and to meditate on God's word. It's in God's law that we learn how God has designed the world to work, how he intends for us to flourish. Psalm 1 verse 2 says that the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. God's word is a life-giving word, a word that brings comfort. So delight in it, meditate on it. In verse 51, we read, The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. The word insolent here means proud or arrogant. Unbelievers who are set in their opposition to God and his people, who scorn believers for their faith. And the psalmist says that regardless of what the arrogant say, he does not turn away from God's law. Now, it can be very challenging in our world today to stay true to God's law. Even in Christian circles, there are many who scoff at God's law. It's viewed as outdated or irrelevant or strict. But I hope you're hearing what the psalmist has been saying in Psalm 119. God's law is the best way to live. If you know that God's law approves of what you're doing, that you're following and obeying God's law, does it really matter what others think? Does it matter if they scoff at you? Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. According to Paul, to abandon the Lord's will is foolish. Why would someone who claims to be a Christian set aside God's law when those around him scoff and mock? If we give in to that kind of opposition, we're letting our emotions rule us rather than being bound by truth. And Paul says that's foolish. If we're living according to God's law, there will be little legitimate reason for the world to oppose us. Now, that doesn't mean it won't happen. But it'll become apparent that they're really standing against God, not against us. Think of the example of Daniel. When Daniel was in Babylon, he's you know, put in charge and there's a lot of people that do not like him. They want him gone. Here's what we read in Daniel chapter 6, verse 5. These men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. See, because Daniel followed God's law, there was nothing they could complain about except the very fact of the law-keeping itself. So that's what they used to try to get rid of him. Don't give people other reasons to oppose you. But when it comes to God's law, don't worry about it when they oppose you. Remember what was said about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And remember what we see in the book of Revelation. God promises a crown to the ones who overcome. There's an eternal reward waiting for those who are faithful. Why trade in an eternal crown for the approval of the crowd today? 
Don't live for the crowd when you can live for the crown. Be satisfied with God's approval. Don't turn away from his law. Verse 52, the psalmist writes, When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. When you face affliction or difficulty, one thing you can do is look back. Sometimes we can look back over our own lives and see God's faithfulness to us, but that's not what's happening here in this verse. Here, the psalmist is looking back through history. He's looking back to see God's faithfulness in the lives of the saints who have gone before him. And when we look back like this, there are a few things that we will see. We will see that there is a God who rules the world, and we can take comfort in that. We see that this God is righteous and good. He rewards good. He punishes evil. His balances are fair and just. We see that God always keeps his word. He always upholds his law. It's the unchangeable rule by which the world is governed. So we know what we can expect from him. And when we look back in history, we realize that we aren't the first to go through difficult circumstances. There are many who've gone before us who have been faithful to God and God has been faithful to them. It's easy to look around and see how wickedness seems to win and those who go along with it seem to be rewarded. The psalmist in Psalm 73 found himself in that situation. But then in verse 17, he comes to a realization after describing how it is that it seems like the wicked prosper, he finally says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, one of the reasons that we gather together like this with God's people for worship is that it reorients our thinking according to God's law. The psalmist here says that it was when he went to worship that his thinking got straightened out. Then he realized what was certain to happen because God is faithful to judge in justice and righteousness. So that's also why history, and particularly church history, is important. God expects us to look back and remember and to learn from it. The same God who was with Daniel and Jeremiah and Paul and Peter and John and Polycarp and John Wycliffe and Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and John Bunyan, all of these men, that same God is with us. He hasn't changed and his presence is with us today in whatever difficult circumstance we go through. Well, at this point then, the psalmist, we have this little kind of outburst of passion from the psalmist. It kind of breaks the flow. He's been talking about how God's law is a comfort in his affliction. Now in verse 53, he says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. The phrase here, hot indignation, 
means a raging heat. It's the kind of heat that causes famine or drought or a burning wind. So this is a burning anger along with a kind of horror at the, de the devastation that's being caused by this wickedness. The psalmist is burning up as he looks around and sees the lawlessness of the wicked. Do you ever get angry as you look around at our culture and you see the wickedness? There is such a thing as a righteous anger. That's what the psalmist is expressing here. And along with it is a kind of horror, a, a, a humanitarian compassion that he has that leads him to be grieved for the judgment that they're bringing on themselves. Sin is foolishness. Sin is the natural activity of a fool. Lawlessness it's a, is a deviation from God's design. It's a departure from what is best. It's a divergence from God's ways. And it's sure to bring judgment. And the wicked here forsake God's law. They depart from it. They leave it behind. They, they set themselves free from what they think is the bondage of God's law, like a rabid animal breaking out of its restraints. This is rebellion against God. It's what we see, for example, in Pharaoh. When God commands him to let his people go, what was Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. But God is not just an advisor, a counselor who's giving good advice. No, he's the sovereign of the universe. And forsaking his laws is high treason. It's rebellion. And so judgment will come. And the psalmist looks on in horror as he sees this play out in his world. Isaiah 3 is a passage that is an announcement of God's judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. It's a, it has a description of their wickedness. And I encourage you to read the whole chapter and ask yourself if it doesn't describe our nation today. But in the middle of that chapter, chapter 3, verse 9, we have this description. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Does that sound like our culture? They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. The way Paul says this at the end of Romans 1 is, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And seeing this kind of wickedness around him burns up the psalmist, and rightly so. Listen to how Thomas Manton describes this kind of situation in a country. He describes it of as the bane which comes to communities and societies from the increase of the wicked, especially when their wickedness grows to a height, that is, when it's committed with boldness. Isaiah 3.9, they declare their sin as Sodom, they hide it not. When men have lost all shame and modesty and will not be restrained by any law, surely if we know the evil of sin, the terribleness of God's wrath, if we believe the truth of his threatenings and then consider the danger that will come to our dearest country, we cannot but be greatly moved 
If a man were sailing in a ship and see it guided so that it must necessarily run against a rock and suffer shipwreck, he would be sorry and deeply affected. So how about you? Does hot indignation seize you because of the wicked who forsake God's law? Or do you find yourself more like the ones drifting along in the ship that is headed for shipwreck and ignoring the rocks ahead? See, as Christians looking at our culture, we should be seized with hot indignation at the rebellion against God, and we should be horrified on behalf of those who are headed for God's judgment. We have the good news that can rescue them, and we must see the urgency of sharing that good news. Now, in verse 54, the psalmist returns to speaking of the role of God's law in his life in the times of affliction and difficulty. He says, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Now, you remember all the way back to the beginning of this series, we we talked about who wrote the psalm. We're not sure who wrote the psalm. Most think it was David. Some think it was Daniel possibly someone else. If it's Daniel, which I think is a little less likely, then we know that he spent the majority of his life in exile in Babylon. So that would be the house of his sojourning. If it was David, which I think is more likely, then when he speaks of the house of my sojourning, he's probably talking about his time on the run from Saul. And what are his songs? What are David's songs? The Psalms. Half of the book of Psalms is songs that were written by David. Whichever one is the case, the point here is that even though he's been removed from the tabernacle and the temple and from normal relations with God's people, he has the comfort of knowing that he's obedient to God's law. Wherever the believer is, whatever his circumstances are, he can rejoice in God's word. James Montgomery Boyce observes that it has always been natural for Christians to sing of what is lodged joyfully in their hearts. So what songs come to your mind when you're in a difficult circumstance? The world's songs are no help. They might ease the pain in the short term, might have some empathy, but there are no real answers there. Do you find it curious that the psalmist finds comfort in singing specifically about God's statutes? He's singing about God's law? Calvin notes that he was stirred up to sing praises to God and those psalms which God put into his mouth, yes, were taken out of the law. For we are to note that David did not create the psalms as a new doctrine, or as a doctrine separate from the doctrine of the law, but drew them from the law as from a fountain. So then it is not without reason that he declares here that the statutes of God served him as psalms and songs, yes, in the places of his pilgrimages. Even the vast majority of the church today wants to leave God's law behind. But what we see here in this verse should stop us in our tracks. God's law was a comfort to the psalmist. He sang songs of God's law. 
This has been his comfort. And this is why we, as a church, have been working on gradually learning songs that are scripture, and specifically the Psalms, put to music. May God change our hearts about his law. Now, before we move on from this verse, just note the idea behind sojourning. The earthly displacement that the psalmist experienced is like a picture of our situation here on earth. There's a sense in which we are not at home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. As we've said before, we are to live in this place and seek to glorify God here. And what happens here matters. And that means in every area of life. We should be seeking Christian art and Christian education and Christian laws and Christian politics and Christian culture. But at the same time, we're not attached to the things of this world. We're sojourners on our way to the heavenly city. The very fact that we have bodies which will die, but a soul that will live on forever indicates to us that we are not home yet. And so God encourages us to have our heart in the right place. Thomas Manton writes that that which doth most effectually draw off the heart of man from this world is the expectation of a far better state in the world to come. Similarly, the author of Hebrews recounts the faith of believers like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. And then he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And while we are in this house of sojourning, we should be singing the songs of Zion, singing of God's statutes, finding our comfort and joy in God and his will. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In verse 55, the psalmist says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Now, the fact that the psalmist is remembering in the night tells us that he's still speaking of the comfort, comfort that he finds in times of difficulty. It seems that he can't sleep. So he puts his mind on God's law. Day and night, the psalmist keeps God's law. That kind of constancy is how we as Christians are called to live. God's law is for all of life. Proverbs 23, verse 17, says that we are to continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Our whole life should be marked by obedience to God's law. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would help us with remembering. He told his disciples, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When we remember God and remember his law, then we are prepared to obey, to carry out our duty by obeying God's law. But when we forget, then we're in trouble. Thomas Manton says, forgetting God is assigned as the cause of all mischief. 
and remembering God, the engagement to duty. That's not just true for individuals. This is true for nations as well. God warned Israel. He said, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, a nation that has been blessed by God must remember what God has done for them. And the active form that that remembering takes is obedience. If we remember, we will obey. In Psalm 9, David wrote, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Nations have a responsibility to remember God and his law. Note that David's not speaking there primarily or exclusively of Israel. He says, all the nations that forget God. Nations are to remember God and his law. So whether we're talking about an individual believer or a nation that has been blessed by God, we are responsible to remember and obey. Commenting on this verse, Charles Bridges writes, Here is the spring of practical religion. We shall keep his law when we remember his name. A sense of our obligations will impel us forward in diligence, heavenly mindedness, and self-devotedness in our appointed sphere. Obedience will partake far more of the character of privilege than of duty when an enlightened knowledge of God is the principle of action. So, actively remember God day and night and let that remembrance drive you to obedience. Well, the last verse of this section of Psalm 119, verse 56 says, This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Now, there is great blessing that comes to us because we keep God's laws. God promises blessings on those who obey and curses on those who disobey. But here, the psalmist is saying something different. The blessing he speaks of here is the very keeping of the law itself. Our human condition is that we have a sin nature. We naturally rebel against God. We naturally reject God's law. Let me just describe this from one chapter in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, 10 and 11 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So no one is naturally inclined toward God. Then a little later in the chapter, verses 19 and 20, we read, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So now we see that no one naturally obeys God's law. In fact, the law condemns every human being 
because every human being naturally violates God's law. And since we're lawbreakers, every one of us, we can't ever meet God's standard of perfection. That's why in verse 23, Paul goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fail to meet the standard because none of us naturally keep God's law. But think of what the psalmist says here in Psalm 119. He says, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. What's he saying? The Bible teaches us that we will always serve someone. We are naturally slaves of sin. But Jesus came to set us free, to rescue us from sin. When he died on the cross, he took the curse of sin, the penalty of the law, on himself. So if we have faith in Jesus, then the curse of the law no longer has any hold on us. Our penalty is paid. We've been set free from sin. Now, does that mean that we are now a law unto ourselves? That we are autonomous? No, of course not. When we were set free from sin, we were set free so that we could now serve Christ. That's where true freedom is found. Freedom is not found in anarchy or autonomy, lawlessness. Freedom is found in being able to live as God intended without the shackles of sin. So later in the book of Romans, chapter 6, Paul writes this. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Because Jesus has paid our sin penalty, we are no longer slaves to sin. And because the Holy Spirit has given us new life, a new spiritual nature, we are now set free to obey God's law. Free because he's changed our hearts. So we can obey from the heart freely. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the psalmist says here in Psalm 119, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. How is it that he can keep God's precepts? By grace, through faith. He's been given a new nature. And so the very ability to keep God's law, the act of keeping God's laws, is itself a blessing of God's grace in his life. Well, that's the text itself this morning. I want you to turn with me now to Leviticus chapter 18. And I wanted to take a little extra time on the text. So I will be brief now as we look about the principle about God's law and the case law that illustrates it. And uh, I'm going to give you kind of the case law first. It's really not a case law. It's a, it's a description that kind of comes with it. And then we'll look at the principle. Okay, so Leviticus chapter 18. If you're looking at that chapter... In the Bible, what you will find is it is a series of laws about cleanness and uncleanness. And then towards the end of that series of laws, 
Here's what we read starting in verse 24. Okay, so we're not reading through all the laws about clean and unclean. I want you to see the comments at the end. Starting in verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. I'm not going to go into great detail here. I just want you to see one thing. In verse 24, God says that these sins, these violations of his law, made the other nations outside of Israel unclean. God is holding these Gentile nations to a particular standard. And what is the standard by which God measures the pagan nations? His law. So one might ask then, well, what standard does God use to measure the nations today? Answer? His law. There's no reason this would have changed for today. God's judgment falls on these nations because they have violated his law. And this is just as true today as it was in Moses' day. God's standard of righteousness is unchanging. His justice is unchanging. His enforcement of the penalties for violating his law is perfect. That leads us then to the principle for today. And that is that God's laws are as binding on the nations as they are on God's people. Now, that seems to be a very strange idea to suggest in 21st century America. We default to thinking that religion has nothing to do with government, but we saw last week that the biblical meaning of separation of church and state is that they are functionally separate, but it doesn't mean a separation of God and state. The state is an authority. Scripture teaches us that. And any authority has to act, to judge, to legislate, to rule according to some standard. How will the state determine what is right and wrong? How will civil magistrates, government officials, know what is the right thing to do? If they are supposed to serve for our good, how do they measure what good is? See, the state today pretends to be neutral, to keep religion out of government, but that's misleading. We've embraced secularism or secular humanism in our culture, but really that's just our religion. Ultimately, what it means, as Joe Boot has observed, is that secularism essentially replaced Christianity as the new public faith of the West, the new religion of state. 
and the ostensible glue holding Western society together. At the same time, by affirming a religious relativism, wherein all faiths are re to be regarded and treated equally, while in the same breath declaring itself as non-religious, secularism brilliantly enthroned itself as the ultimate religious principle. See, it's not that the state is somehow neutral or objective when it comes to religion. It's that the state actually has its own religious commitments. It just describes them as neutrality or secularism, but they're religious commitments nonetheless. Now, we'll continue talking more about this in coming weeks, but for today, let me just finish by giving you two more thoughts. The first is an illustration from Scripture, and the second, a couple of quotes from Christian leaders of the past. Okay, so first of all, a comparison from Scripture. In Micah chapter 3, God is condemning the rulers of Israel for their evil. And he says in verse 1, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? And then he details their wickedness. And he describes the rulers, when you get down to verse 10, as those who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. So their city has been built with blood and iniquity. And because of this, God says, they will be judged and left as a heap of ruins. Now compare that with what is said in Habakkuk 2. There, in Habakkuk 2, we read in verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Sounds the same, right? But this word is spoken to the Chaldeans, not to Israel. This is spoken to another nation, a Gentile nation. But the standard by which God judges them is the same. These Gentile rulers are held to the same standard of God's law. That's just one illustration of the principle that we've seen today, that God's laws are as binding on the nations as they are on God's people. And past generations of Christians understood this. This was the common belief, the common understanding. Let me just give you this morning quotes from three men, though there are many more that we could take a look at. First, one of the Scottish ambassadors, representatives to the Westminster Assembly, Samuel Rutherford said that the intrinsic work and end of the magistrate is to avenge evil doing and so to remove the fierce anger of the Lord from a land that the people may fear and not do any such wickedness. He followed that with a number of scripture references. And his point is that when the people of a land are allowed to be wicked without restraint, God's anger rests on that nation. So one role of the magistrate, the government official, is to protect his people from incurring God's wrath. And he does that by rewarding the good and punishing the evil. Now, how does he measure what is good and evil? Rutherford makes it clear elsewhere that God's law is the standard. Second example is an early Baptist named Isaac Bacchus. He said this, it is often pleaded that magistrates ought to do their duty in religious as well as civil affairs. That is readily granted, but what is their duty therein? 
Surely it is to bow to the name of Jesus and serve him with holy reverence. The duty of a magistrate is to bow to the name of Jesus and serve him. In the way they carry out their responsibilities as a magistrate, they are serving Jesus and are to be obedient to him and his word. Third and final example is the great Baptist theologian John Gill. And he wrote that kings are the guardians of the laws of God and man. And Christian kings have a peculiar concern with the laws of the two tables that they are observed and the violators of them punished. Rulers are to act with God's law as their standard. Now, we've seen over and over that God's standard for our rulers is his law. Obeying God's law is good for the nation. We're far from that today in our nation. But if we do what the psalmist said, if we remember God's law, then we will once again see our nation blessed in obedience. We should look to the old paths, remember God's works from of old. But even if our nation never returns to obedience, you and I are called to faithful obedience in the midst of the wickedness. We hear loud and clear from the psalmist this morning that God's law is his comfort in the midst of affliction. And we should echo this love for God's law. God's promises are what gives us hope and life. Even when evil men mock and scoff at us, we should not turn from God's law. In a culture that embraces wickedness, we should feel the same hot indignation that the psalmist felt at the wicked who forsake God's law. But we should also turn that same standard on ourselves. Are we obeying God's law? Do we sing of the law of God while we are in the house of our sojourning? Do we remember God's name in the night so that we keep his law at all times? If so, then we will be able to say with the psalmist that this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. May we say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. Lord, as we hear the words that the psalmist has left for us this morning, I pray that his attitude, the attitude of his heart, his inclination towards your law would be ours. That we would be learning from him to love your law. That when we face difficult circumstances, times of affliction, here in our wanderings on this earth, the time that we're here, that we would find our comfort and joy in what you have said. Help us to be people who love your law and live by it. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.